Chapter Two of the Return of the Soul by Robert S. Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Wednesday night, November fourth. Margot has gone to bed at last, and I am alone. This has been a horrible day, horrible, but I will not dwell upon it. After the death of my grandmother, I went back to school again. But Willoughby was gone, and he could not forgive me. He wrote to me once or twice from New York, and then I ceased to hear from him. He died out of my life. His affection for me had evidently declined from the day when he took it into his head that I was only a money-grubber, like the rest of the world, and that the Jew instinct had developed in me at an abnormally early age. I let him go. What did it matter? But I was always glad that I had been cruel on the day my grandmother died. I never repented of what I did, never. If I had, I might be happier now. I went back to school. I studied, played, got into mischief and out of it again, like other boys. But in my life there seemed to be an eternal coldness that I alone, perhaps, was conscious of. My deed of cruelty, of brutal revenge on the thing that had never done me injury, had seared my soul. I was not sorry, but I could not forget. And sometimes I thought, how ridiculous it looks written down, that there was a power hidden somewhere which could not forget either, and that a penalty might have to be paid. Because a creature is dumb, must its soul die when it dies? Is not the soul, perhaps, as he said, a wanderer through many bodies? But if I did not kill a soul, as I killed a body, the day my grandmother died, where is that soul now? That is what I want to arrive at. That is what I must arrive at, if I am to be happy. I went back to school, and I passed to Oxford. I tasted the strange, unique life of a university, narrow yet pulsating, where the youth that is so green and springing tries to arm itself for the battle with the weapons forged by the dead and sharpened by the more elderly among the living. I did well there, and I passed on into the world and then at last I began to understand the value of my inheritance, for all that had been my grandmother's was now mine. My people wished me to marry, but I had no desire to fetter myself. So I took the sponge in my strong young hands and tried to squeeze it dry. And I did not know that I was sad. I did not know it until, at the age of thirty-three, just seventeen years after my grandmother died, I understood the sort of thing happiness is. Of course, it was love that brought to me understanding. I need not explain that. I had often played on love. Now love began to play on me. I trembled at the harmonies his hands evoked. I met a young girl, very young, just on the verge of life and of womanhood, she was seventeen when I first saw her, and she was valsing at a big ball in London, her first ball. She passed me in the crowd of dancers, and I noticed her. 
As she was a debutante, her dress was naturally snow-white. There was no touch of color about it, not a flower, not a jewel. Her hair was the palest yellow I had almost ever seen, the color of an early primrose. Naturally fluffy, it nearly concealed the white riband that ran through it, and clustered in tendrils and tiny natural curls upon her neck. Her skin was whiter than ivory, a clear, luminous white. Her eyes were very large and china-blue in color. This young girl dancing passed and repassed me, and my glance rested on her idly, even cynically, for she seemed so happy, and at that time happiness won my languid wonder, if ingenuously exhibited. To be happy seemed almost to be mindless. But by degrees I found myself watching this girl, and more closely. Another dance began. She joined it with another partner. But she seemed just as pleased with him as with her former one. She would not let him pause to rest. She kept him dancing all the time, her youth and freshness spoken in that gentle compelling. I grew interested in her, even acutely so. She seemed to me like the spirit of youth dancing over the body of time. I resolved to know her. I felt weary. I thought she might revive me. The dance drew to an end, and I approached my hostess, pointed the girl out, and asked for an introduction. Her name was Margot Magendi, I found, and she was an heiress as well as a beauty. I did not care. It was her humanity that drew me, nothing else. But, strange to say, when the moment for the introduction arrived, and I stood face to face with Miss Magendi, I felt an extraordinary shrinking from her. I have never been able to understand it, but my blood ran cold, and my pulses almost ceased to beat. I would have avoided her. An instinct within me seemed suddenly to cry out against her, but it was too late. The introduction was effected. Her hand rested on my arm. I was actually trembling. She did not appear to notice it. The band played a valse, and the inexplicable horror that had seized me lost itself in the gay music. It never returned until lately. I seldom enjoyed a valse more. Our steps suited so perfectly, and her obvious childish pleasure communicated itself to me. The spirit of youth in her knocked on my rather jaded heart, and I opened to it. That was beautiful and strange. I talked with her, and I felt myself younger, ingenuous rather than cynical, inclined even to a radiant, though foolish, optimism. She was very natural very imperfect in worldly education, full of fragmentary but decisive views on life, quite unabashed in giving them forth, quite inconsiderate in summoning my adherence to them. And then, presently, as we sat in a dim corridor under a rosy hanging lamp, in saying something she looked, with her great blue eyes, right into my face, some very faint recollection awoke and stirred in my mind. "'Surely,' 
I said hesitatingly, "'surely I have seen you before? It seems to me that I remember your eyes.' As I spoke I was thinking hard, chasing the vagrant recollection that eluded me. She smiled. "'You don't remember my face?' "'No, not at all.' "'Nor I yours. If we had seen each other, surely we should recollect it.' Then she blushed, suddenly realizing that her words implied, perhaps, more than she had meant. I did not pay the obvious compliment. Those blue eyes and something in their expression moved me strangely, but I could not tell why. When I said good-bye to her that night, I asked to be allowed to call. She assented. That was the beginning of a very beautiful courtship, which gave a color to life, a music to existence, a meaning to every slightest sensation. And was it love that laid to sleep recollection, that sang a lullaby to awakening horror, and strewed poppies over it till it sighed itself into slumber? Was it love that drowned my mind in deep and charmed waters, binding the strange powers that every mind possesses in flowery garlands stronger than any fetters of iron? Was it love that, calling up dreams, alienated my thoughts from their search after reality? I hardly know. I only know that I grew to love Margot, and only looked for love in her blue eyes not for any deed of the past that might be mirrored there. And I made her love me. She gave her child's heart to my keeping with a perfect confidence that only a perfect affection could engender. She did love me then. No circumstances of today can break that fact under their hammers. She did love me and it is the knowledge that she did which gives so much of fear to me now. For great changes in the human mind are terrible. As we realize them, we realize the limitless possibilities of sinister deeds that lie hidden in every human being. A little child that loves a doll can become an old, crafty, secret murderer. How horrible! And perhaps it is still more horrible to think that, while the human envelope remains totally unchanged, every word of the letter within may become altered, and a message of peace fade into a sentence of death. Margot's face is the same face now as it was when I married her, scarcely older, certainly not less beautiful. Only the expression of the eyes has changed for we were married. After a year of love-making, which never tired either of us, we elected to bind ourselves, to fuse the two into one. We went abroad for the honeymoon, and, instead of shortening it to the fashionable fortnight, we traveled for nearly six months and were happy all the time. Boredom never set in. Margot had a beautiful mind as well as a beautiful face. She softened me through my affection. The current of my life began to set in a different direction. I turned the pages of a book of pity and of death more beautiful than that of Pierre Loti.
I could hear at last the great cry for sympathy, which is the music of this strange suffering world, and, listening to it, in my heart there rang an echo. The cruelty in my nature seemed to shrivel up. I was more gentle than I had been, more gentle than I had thought I could ever be. At last, in the late spring, we started for home. We stayed for a week in London, and then we traveled north. Margot had never seen her future home, had never even been in Cumberland before. She was full of excitement and happiness, a veritable child in the ready and ardent expression of her feelings. The station is several miles from the house and is on the edge of the sea. When the train pulled up at the wayside platform, the day drew toward sunset, and the flat levels of the beach shone with a rich, liquid, amber light. In the distance, the sea was tossing and tumbling, whipped into foam by a fresh wind. The Isle of Man lay far away, dark, mysterious, under a stack of bellying white clouds, just beginning to be tinged with the faintest rose. Margot found the scene beautiful, the wind life-giving, the flat sandbanks, the shining levels, even the dry, spiky grass that fluttered in the breeze, fascinating and refreshing. "'I feel near the heart of nature in a place like this,' she said, looking up at a seagull that hovered over the little platform, crying to the wind on which it hung. The train stole off along the edge of the sands, till we could see only the white steamer of its smoke trailing towards the sun. We turned away from the sea, got into the carriage that was waiting for us, and set our faces inland. The ocean was blotted out by the low grass and heather-covered banks that divided the fields. Presently we plunged into woods. The road descended sharply. A village an abruptly winding river sprang into sight. We were on my land. We passed the inn, the Rainwood Arms, named after my grandfather's family. The people whom we met stared curiously and saluted in rustic fashion. Margot was full of excitement and pleasure and talked incessantly, holding my hand tightly in hers and asking a thousand questions. Passing through the village, we mounted a hill towards a thick grove of trees. "'The house stands among them,' I said, pointing. She sprang up eagerly in the carriage to find it, but it was hidden. We dashed through the gate into the momentary darkness of the drive, emerged between great green lawns, and drew up before the big doorway of the hall. I looked into her eyes and said, welcome she only smiled in answer i would not let her enter the house immediately but made her come with me to the terrace above the river to see the view over the cumbrian mountains and the moors of eskdale the sky was very clear and pale but over stiehead the clouds were boiling up the screes that guard ebon wastewater looked grim and sad Margot stood beside me on the terrace, but her chatter had been succeeded by silence. And I, too, was silent for the moment, 
absorbed in contemplation. But presently I turned to her, wishing to see how she was impressed by her new domain. She was not looking towards the river and the hills, but at the terrace walk itself, the band of emerald surf that bordered it, the stone pots full of flowers, the winding way that led into the shrubbery. She was looking at these intently, and with a strangely puzzled, almost startled expression. "'Hush! Don't speak to me for a moment,' she said as I opened my lips. "'Don't. I want to—' How odd this is!' And she gazed up at the windows of the house, at the creepers that climbed its walls, at the sloping roof and the irregular chimney stacks. Her lips were slightly parted, and her eyes were full of an inward expression that told me she was struggling with forgetfulness and desired recollection. I was silent, wondering. At last she said, "'Ronald, I have never been in the north of England before, never set foot in Cumberland. Yet I seem to know this terrace walk, those very flower-pots, the garden, the look of that roof, those chimneys, even the slanting way in which that great creeper climbs. Is it not, is it not very strange? She gazed up at me, and in her blue eyes there was an expression almost of fear. I smiled down on her. It must be your fancy, I said. It does not seem so, she replied. I feel as if I had been here before, and often, or for a long time. She paused, then she said, Do let me go into the house. There ought to be a room there, a room. I seem almost to see it. Come, let us go in. She took my hand and drew me towards the hall door. The servants were carrying in the luggage, and there was a certain amount of confusion and noise, but she did not seem to notice it. She was intent on something. I could not tell what. "'Do show me the house, Ronald, the drawing-room, and—and—there is another room I wish to see.' "'You shall see them all, dear,' I said. "'You are excited. It is natural enough. This is the drawing-room.' She glanced round it hastily. "'And now the others!' she exclaimed. I took her to the dining-room, the library, and the various apartments on the ground floor. She scarcely looked at them. When we had finished exploring, "'Are these all?' she asked, with a wavering accent of disappointment. "'All,' I answered. Then show me the rooms upstairs. We ascended the shallow oak steps and passed first into the apartment in which my grandmother had died. It had been done up since then, refurnished, and almost completely altered. Only the wide fireplace, with its brass dogs and its heavy oaken mantelpiece, had been left untouched. Margot glanced hastily round. Then she walked up to the fireplace and drew a long breath. "'There ought to be a fire here,' she said. "'But it is summer,' I answered, wondering. 
"'And a chair there,' she went on, in a curious low voice, indicating, I think now, or is it my imagination, the very spot where my grandmother was wont to sit. "'Yes, I seem to remember, and yet not to remember.' She looked at me, and her white brows were knit. Suddenly she said, "'Ronald, I don't think I like this room. There is something, I don't know, I don't think I could sit here. And I seem to remember something about it, as I did about the terrace. What can it mean?' "'It means that you are tired and overexcited, darling. Your nerves are too highly strung and nerves play us strange tricks. Come to your own room and take off your things, and when you have had some tea, you will be all right again. Yes, I was fool enough to believe that tea was the panacea for an undreamed of, a then unimaginable, evil. I thought Margot was simply an overtired and imaginative child that evening. If I could believe so now. We went up into her boudoir and had tea, and she grew more like herself, but several times that night I observed her looking puzzled and thoughtful, and a certain expression of anxiety shone in her blue eyes that was new to them then. But I thought nothing of it, and I was happy. Two or three days passed and Margot did not again refer to her curious sensation of pre-knowledge of the house and garden. I fancied there was a slight alteration in her manner. That was all. She seemed a little restless. Her vivacity flagged now and then. She was more willing to be alone than she had been. But we were old married folk now, and could not be always in each other's sight. I had a great many people connected with the estate to see, and had to gather up the tangled threads of many affairs. The honeymoon was over. Of course, we could not always be together. Still, I should have wished Margot to desire it, and I could not hide from myself that, now and then, she scarcely concealed a slight impatience to be left in solitude. This troubled me, but only a little for she was generally as fond as ever. That evening, however, an incident occurred which rendered me decidedly uneasy, and made me wonder if my wife were not inclined to that curse of highly strung women, hysteria. I had been riding over the moors to visit a tenant farmer who lived at some distance, and did not return until twilight. Dismounting, I let myself into the house, traversed the hall, and ascended the stairs. As I wore spurs, and the steps were of polished oak and uncarpeted, I walked noisily enough to warn anyone of my approach. I was passing the door of the room that had been my grandmother's sitting-room when I noticed that it stood open. The house was rather dark, and the interior was dim enough, but I could see a figure in a white dress moving about inside. I recognized Margot and wondered what she was doing, but her movements were so singular that, instead of speaking to her, I stood in the doorway and watched her. 
she was walking with a very peculiar, stealthy step around the room, not as if she were looking for anything, but merely as if she were restless or ill at ease. But what struck me forcibly was this, that there was something curiously animal in her movements, seen thus in a dim half-light that only partially revealed her to me. I had never seen a woman walk in that strangely wild yet soft way before. There was something uncanny about it that rendered me extremely discomforted. Yet I was quite fascinated and rooted to the ground. I cannot tell how long I stood there. I was so completely absorbed in the passion of the gazer that the passage of time did not concern me in the least. I was as one assisting at a strange spectacle. This white thing moving in the dark did not suggest my wife to me, although it was she. I might have been watching an animal, vague yet purposeful of mind, tracing out some hidden thing, following out some instinct quite foreign to humanity. I remember that presently I involuntarily clasped my hands together and felt that they were very cold. Perspiration broke out on my face. I was painfully, unnaturally moved, and a violent desire to be away from this white moving thing came over me. Walking as softly as I could, I went to my dressing room, shut the door, and sat down on a chair. I never remember to have felt thoroughly unnerved before, but now I found myself actually shaken, palsied. I could understand how deadly a thing fear is. I lit a candle hastily, and as I did so a knock came to the door. Margot's voice said, "'May I come in?' I felt unable to reply, so I got up and admitted her. She entered smiling, and looking such a child, so innocent, so tender, that I almost laughed aloud. That I, a man, should have been frightened by a child in a white dress, just because the twilight cast a phantom atmosphere around her. I held her in my arms, and I gazed into her blue eyes. She looked down, but still smiled. "'Where have you been, and what have you been doing?' I asked gaily. She answered that she had been in the drawing-room since tea-time. "'You came here straight from the drawing-room?' I said. She replied, "'Yes.' Then, with an indifferent air which hid real anxiety, I said, "'By the way, Margot, have you been into that room again, the room you fancied you recollected?' "'No, never,' she answered, withdrawing herself from my arms. "'I don't wish to go there. Make haste, Ronald, and dress. It is nearly dinner-time, and I am ready.' And she turned and left me. She had told me a lie. All my feelings of uneasiness and discomfort returned tenfold. That evening was the most wretched one, the only wretched one, I had ever spent with her. I am tired of writing. I will continue my task tomorrow.
it takes me longer than I anticipated. Yet even to tell everything to myself brings me some comfort. Man must express himself, and despair must find a voice. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline